Revelation. And um, let's pray and, and go through the next one, which is the letter to the church of Thyatira. Father, please make the only thing that matters in all of this uh, what you want specifically for our lives um, and what you want how, us to know about you and, and how you want us to have a closer relationship with you. And just ask that you would take care of all the little details that are needed for that to happen. And um, because you, you can and do. We, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, before I get started, I just want to check, am I loud enough for everybody to hear? Because sometimes I get quiet. It's just my personality. People in the back say yes, so I'm going to say that that's, that's probably pretty good. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going through these seven letters, and we've, this is the fourth one of them, so it's about the halfway point. And I don't know if you ever went to summer camp as a kid, and the first couple days, they feel like they're going to take forever. Like, this camp will never end. And then around the middle of the camp, you start to think, oh, this might end someday. And then the last two days, they don't even exist. It's like camp is over um, before you know it. And so I kind of feel like we're, we're there at this point in the letters because we're on the fourth one of the seven. But, but one thing you can do about halfway through camp is you can look at it and say, well, what's the pattern? Like, what, what, what has camp been like for me? And so you can kind of look at some of the patterns of the overall letters here. And the one that sticks out to me is this one is written to a little city, town, community called Thyatira. And uh, Thyatira was inland a bit. There might be, uh, we can get a little uh, map of where Thyatira is. And you can see it's, it's kind of in the, I don't know, middle. It's the northeast side of things there. And if you think about the first letter was to Ephesus. And it was written to a guy at Patmos. So if you look at where Patmos is and then Ephesus, Ephesus is the closest one, right? And then next letter is to Smyrna. And then the next letter is to Pergamum. You notice he's just going up the coast. And then the next letter is to Thyatira. That's the fourth one. We'll study it today. And then the next one's Sardis. The next one's Philadelphia. And the next one's Laodicea. And it's interesting because uh, there were this is very nerdy of me, but there were 5,040 ways that he could have ordered these seven letters. There's, pick any ordering of them. There's lots of them. Lots of possible ways of ordering seven things. But Jesus picked this one when he wrote to John. And this is the one that if you were traveling and you were delivering these letters one at a time, this is the optimal route for it. Um, and so this would have distributed the letters the fastest to the churches, for one thing. But it also reminds me that uh, God is very detail-oriented, and God is doing a real thing here. They're written to seven real churches that existed in seven real places, real cities at that time. They're addressing real things going on in the churches, um, and there's this the real person carrying the things around. And sometimes I need to be reminded of that today, because while there are abstract and general things about God and His his personality, his unchangingness, and all these things about him, I sometimes forget the realness of him and how he interacts with me in very specific ways. And, you know, he does that for me, he does that for you. I think a simple example is, um, well, 
one, it's easier to see that in retrospect. Sometimes five years pass and you look back and you say, oh, God did this in my life here. God did this specific thing in my life here. But then also there's times in the present where God says, you know, maybe you should talk to that person. And you go talk to them. It turns out that was a divine appointment. And God really had for you something in this conversation. or had for them something in that conversation. He had a plan for it. And so, you know, just looking at these seven letters broadly, you see that God had these specific plans for these churches at that time. And it's important for us to remember that he has that kind of detail-oriented interaction with our lives too. Like, he wants that. And these letters remind us of that. Now, the structure of the letters, they um, have an introduction where Jesus says some things about himself. And it's things that people need to be reminded of. That church is in danger of forgetting or, or has forgotten. Jesus will introduce himself. And then they're followed by, or that's followed by um, commendation. Things that Jesus is praising them for. Things they're doing well. And most of the churches get commendation. There's things that Jesus likes about them. That's followed by correction or rebuke. And these are things that the church needs to change. And part of God's love is to tell us not just the things we're doing well, but the things that need to change. Correction, I'm sorry. Yes, the correction is followed by um, a promise or a... uh, the, the good things that are going to happen for those that conquer, those that overcome. And then every letter has the exact words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The exhortation to hear what's said. Now this letter, uh, starting in verse 18, says to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, it's that word angel, it means messenger more specifically. And it's probably the person delivering the letter to the church. And Jesus goes into his introduction. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's kind of an impressive picture, right? Um, It's from chapter 1 where there's a whole description of John seeing this image of Jesus and he has... Uh, He's shining, has a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got the eyes like fire and the feet like bronze. And um, when John sees it, he falls down at his feet as though dead, is what it says. Like It's so impressive that John just sort of collapses. Um, And here he's telling them pieces of that picture that are important to them. Uh, But first he calls himself the Son of God. Now Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. And when he says Son of Man, he's emphasizing his humanity, that he can sympathize with our weakness, for example, um, that he took on human flesh to come be with us. You know, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes we can start thinking of Jesus more as something like our homeboy, something that is a little too much that he's just man. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is also the Son of God. And so he refers to himself here as the Son of God to remind them of his deity. Because he's both. He is man, but he's also deity. And what would be okay to think of Jesus if he was only the Son of Man is is not okay to think of Jesus when he's both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Um, Now, these two things he mentions here the eyes like a flame of fire and the feet like burnished bronze. 
One of the places we see fire and bronze in the scripture is associated with judgment, um, consistently, actually. And uh, the brazen altar outside the temple where they'd bring the sacrifice and they'd burn it was made of bronze. That was the instruction given to Moses, was that this is to be made of bronze. Um, And Jesus' reminder to them here is that he's the son of God. He is not just man, but he's holy, right? He was tempted in all ways as we are. That's only man can be tempted, but he was without sin. He was holy. Only God's without sin and holy. And his description here is that when he sees sin, um, you know, his eyes flame of fire, they see things. He also, he has to judge it. And the feet, you know, he has to judge and, and really feet to trample underneath sin. Now, God is love, and he is going to express judgment in this. This letter has an extra little piece that also expresses love. So God is love, and part of God's love, though, is to be a righteous and holy judge. It's, it's not loving, and some of you are going to hear this and think, no, that's not right, but please, please think about it. Um, it's not loving to allow people to live in their sin. It might feel like love. Um, but to allow people to live in something that's going to destroy them is, is not loving. It's not loving. It's, it's not for their good, ultimately. Um, love corrects. Love disciplines. Love reproves when it has to. Um, we have a child. We're, he's, he's 14 months right now. He's sick. That's why my better half is not here, um, taking care of the sick child. But um, when he does certain things, we're, we're pretty permissive with him, but when he does certain things, we have to stop him. We have to correct him. We have to tell him, no, you're not allowed to do this because that behavior long-term is going to get him hurt. Um, and God's love is that same way. He looks out for us like a father. Jesus, being the express image of his person, also looks out for us, wants our best, and he's going to be loving towards us sometimes through correction or discipline. Now he starts with praise, though, because he does love them. He says, I know your works, um, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Um, they had a love for God and for others, which is fantastic, right? That's, that's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They had faith. They're clear about who Jesus is, how salvation works. They believed what God said. That's just fantastic. Uh, they're good at service. Often you find people that say, well, I've, I've got faith, but they don't do anything, right? They don't act on it. And these, these people are acting on it. They have service. And they have patient endurance. Now, uh, in the city of Thyatira, and really in all of these churches, there were various things that made it such that they had to endure. There were pressures on them. In Thyatira, in particular, Thyatira was not a particularly uh, impressive city. There's a, this guy named Pliny, Pliny the Elder. He spoke of it. He said, Thyatira and other unimportant communities. So it's just kind of a, a small, unimportant place. Uh, it wasn't a particular center of religious worship like uh, some of the previous churches we've studied. It was not 
or cities we've studied. It was not a particular center of uh, trade and wealth. And what it really was, was largely working class, and it was a city of industry. They produced rugs. They produced dyes. Um, they did metalwork. And that's what Thyatira was known for. Um, now, because that was what the population was sort of about, that's what their culture was, they had developed something like unions there. They had guilds. And the guilds were more than a union, they were also a social club. So if you were a member of the guild, much like a union, it allowed you to work in your trade. To not be a member of the guild was to not be a member of the union. Uh, my mom was a musician and had many things to say about unions because she couldn't work certain places for not being in the unions. You guys probably have strong opinions about unions too. I'll just stop there with them. But there's these guilds. And um, not only was it you had to be a member of the guild to work, but also to be a member of the guild meant you would go to the guild meals. And the guild meals would start with pouring out a cup of wine to the gods and a prayer to the gods. Not to God, not to the living God, but to the gods, the, the pantheon. And um, the meal would end with pouring out another cup of wine and a blessing to the gods. And the meal would consist typically of meat sacrificed to idols because there's a lot of idol worship even in this place that wasn't a center for it. Uh, it was just part of the culture they were in. And to be a part of the guild was to have to attend these meals. And whether a Christian could attend those meals or not was, was actually not really debated in the church. It was, no, you, you can't really go to these. Um, and also because of the nature of the gods, these meals often ended with uh, some form of debauchery after it uh, because they had largely elevated human passions to gods. Um, so, so that's the city they're in. They're in Thyatira. Uh, they're, they have these guilds. In order to work in their trade and be paid well, they'd have to join the guild, and the Christians couldn't. And that's the kind of thing that they are showing patient endurance in. Which, again, fantastic. We don't have, we have pressures here about how we feel we can act in the workplace, um, but nothing quite like that. You know, our workplace doesn't have, uh, or our coworkers don't have specific pagan festivals as far as I know, uh, on a regular basis. Now, the last part of his praise to them, and it's undiluted, is that their latter works exceed the first. So they have these things, and they're growing in them. And it's certainly something we want for our lives, to be growing in our service to the Lord, our faith, our love towards others. Um, it, it, it's good praise. And if we could stop there, if Jesus was able to stop there, we'd all be getting early lunch, right? I'd, I'd just be done, and, and that would be the end of it. But, but Jesus couldn't stop there. He had to address something that was going on in that church. And so he goes on, he says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Um, it says, Who calls herself a prophetess. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So, a few strikes against her. One, she says, hey, I'm a prophetess. And think about a prophet. Now, a prophet, we usually think of that as somebody that foretells things, right? We, we associate being a prophet with somebody telling the future. But the real meaning of it, or the more common meaning of it, 
is somebody that foretells. They're making public what God wants to be made public. They're speaking for God. And uh, they do it by divine inspiration. So they rightly speak for God by divine inspiration. It's not because they're really, really smart. It's not because they have a bunch of wisdom. It's because God speaks through them. And God says it's an appointment. Like he actually appoints people to be prophets. So it's not, it's not like I can say I'm a prophet or some organization can say I'm a prophet. God has to say, I want this person to be a prophet. And then God has to speak through that person for them to actually exercise this. So uh, Jezebel, though, is, is um, calling herself a prophet. God didn't call her that, didn't appoint her to it. And uh, there were a number of, of women that were prophets in the New Testament. It's not, it's not like, has nothing to do with Jezebel being a woman. It's just that this specific person God had not called and she had declared herself such. And, um, and the thing is, if you're speaking and you claim you're speaking for God and God didn't call you to it, then somebody's speaking, but it's not God. So, you know, she doesn't have that gift. God's not speaking through her. And what that brought her to be teaching or speaking was this doctrine where she says, hey, it's okay to practice sexual immorality, sexual immorality, and it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, idol worship. And it's a, a mixing of all of the word, world's morals with the church's morals. She's trying to bring the morals of the world into the church. Now, she reminds us of Queen Jezebel. There was a queen in the Old Testament named Jezebel. She was a princess in Sidon. And then she married King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. And... Um, the thing is, Ahab was known as being evil or wicked. And that was in northern Israel where they'd never had a good king. So he was wicked among evil kings. And then what we read of Jezebel is that she spurned Ahab to evil. So his level of wickedness was inspired by Jezebel of the Old Testament. So she's, she's um, not a good character. She's one of the few people in the Bible that gets God announcing how they're going to die ahead of time, and then they die that way. Uh, it's a very serious thing, it, it's, but that's what happened to Queen Jezebel, the Old Testament. And what she did is she brought in the gods from Sidon to Israel. Uh, one of them was named Baal, and um, fertility god. With that came sexual immorality and the worship of that god. And it really corrupted God's people. Jezebel and Thyatira was corrupting God's people. Now what Paul says about this, what Paul says about this is, but sexual immorality, this is Ephesians 5, 3 to 6, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you shouldn't even be named among you. It's not that it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't even be talked about. As is proper among saints. That's what's right for God's people. That's what's right for the local church. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Uh, today we call those dirty jokes. No dirty jokes. Which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. 
He goes on, he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, do we want that in the church? No, not at all. But, Thyatira, his specific thing he has against them is that they're tolerating her in the church. They're letting her be there. They're not hindering. Um, They're permitting or allowing her to teach that and to bring these sins into the church Um, when what they should be doing, what the leadership should be doing is restraining it. They should be holding it back. Uh, One reason is that the church is to be a pure, spotless thing for God's Son to be um, joined to. The church is described as the bride of Christ. And um, as part of that, Jesus wants a unspotted, a spotless bride. And um, when you bring sin into the church, it, it, it corrupts it. Now, because of what's happening here, Jesus is going to have to pass judgment. He's going to have to judge the church. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Now, it's true that God always gives time to repent, right? You, you think about um, the way, the, how patient God is in our lives, uh, how forgiving, how loving, and he gives time to repent. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And uh, it's not like, you know, sometimes we have this idea, like he's got the lightning bolt dispenser, and he's just really excited about getting to, to smite somebody. Um, but, but God's not like that in the least. Uh, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And because of that, he's patient. In Ezekiel, the prophet cries out, and, and something about this just really gets me. He says, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why would ye die? And that's God's heart. Please turn, please turn, please turn, for why would you want to go through the consequences of what you're doing? And so that's God's heart toward people that get caught up in this stuff. And the problem with uh, one problem, one problem with getting into immorality is God gives time to repent and often people don't want to repent. And it's the same thing for covetousness. You get into covetousness or idolatry and you, you start living for, for something, some master passion of your life, maybe money, instead of for God. And God says, hey, here's some time. Turn back to me. I, I love you. I want relationship with you. And our hearts, they get corrupted and we say, I don't want that. And you have this continuous refusal of what God offers. Now, this passage, God gave Jezebel time to repent, but at this point, he doesn't call her to repentance again. He's going to call the others, the people that have listened to her, but he doesn't call her. He just pronounces judgment at this point. So sometimes... God is patient, God is forbearing, but he doesn't 
that doesn't extend to forever in your life. And there's no guarantee about where that ends. And I'm not trying to be scary. Um, I'm just trying to tell you that God loves you. And at some point, the way he loves you goes from giving you time to repent to having to act according to what you're doing. And, um, and so take advantage of the time to repent when you have it. Um, take advantage of that time when you have it. Now, the judgment he pronounces, he says, Behold, I'll throw her into a sick bed, um, like a hospital bed. She's going to get sick. And those who commit adultery with her, and this is, the idea here is spiritual adultery. That's the language that the Bible tends to use um, for people worshiping other gods. God calls that adultery because instead of spending time with him, you're spending time with them. And so those that uh, spiritually say, oh, I want to follow her, says, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent. So there is a call to repentance for those people. And he says, and I will strike her children dead. Again, spiritual children is, uh, is the likely meaning here. And one of the reasons he'll do that, he says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. They'll know that he's, he stands out unique that way. Like the person sitting next to you, you might know them very well, you might be married to them for decades, but they don't know exactly what's in your mind and heart. But God does. Jesus does. And when we see him judge, one of the things that happens is we recognize that he can do this. He can see the secret things in our mind and heart. Um, it, it makes us aware of, of how great he is that way. Um, then he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. We don't want God to deal with us according to our works. We want him to deal with us according to mercy, right? David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, said, Psalm 51, he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He repented and he just wanted mercy. That's how he wanted God to interact with him. Now, um, there's a set of people in any church that need to hear that message, that, that the morals of the world, if you're following them, if you're allowing them to come into the church, if you're allowing them to come into the little church that you're the head of household on in your home, um, that needs to stop, that needs to change. There's, there's some part of the church that needs to hear that. But God knows that there's more of the church than that. And he continues the message with encouragement for the, for the rest. For everybody that that first part didn't apply to, he has encouragement. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, everybody else, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and this is, I think applies to a lot of us, and it's a wonderful encouragement, I do not lay on you any other burden. Now, Jesus is so gentle with us. He just says, I'm not going to lay a bunch of burdens on you, no heavy burdens. Just keep what you have. And you say, well, what burden is there? He continues and he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now, Colossians, it says, uh, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And you just think about how you became a believer, how you came into relationship with God. It was really simple, right? Somebody told you about him. Um, you might have spent some time learning about him, but at some point you said, I trust him for salvation. I trust him to come into my life and work in me. I trust him to uh, walk with me, walk me 
till the end of this life and then to be with him for the next life. It was, it was pretty simple. It's a pretty straightforward thing. And the way we received him is, is how we're to walk with him. It's, it's in this simple faith, the simple trust of him, simple relationship. What happened back in Jeremiah's day, um, God was talking to Jeremiah because there'd, be, there'd become this sort of habit where the people, the prophets, the priests, they'd all go talk to each other and say, like, what's the burden of the Lord? And God said, hey, if one of them comes and asks, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden. Which, one, yeah, I think is kind of funny. Uh, you know, I, I just see this priest in his, his robes and Jeremiah in probably not robes, probably pretty rough, and somebody saying, what's the burden of the Lord? Because he is recognized as speaking for God. You know, people recognize truth even when they don't want to, even when it's, well, that's a different story. So they recognize truth in, uh, in Jeremiah, and they say, what's the burden of the Lord? And he just says, you're the burden. Um, but, but the thing is, God was tired of it. God was tired of it. And he says, the burden of the Lord, this is God's command, you shall mention no more, for the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God. And what happens is we take what God said, and then we expand on it, past what God said, and it turns into a little burden. And um, this happened in Jeremiah's day. It happened in the Jewish interpretation of the law. You know, they took the 612 laws, made about 50,000 laws out of that. And it was well intended, like we're trying to help you keep what God said. But it turned into a burden. Jesus said, you guys put burdens on people that you yourselves can't even bear. Um, and I'd say it happens today when, say, you read a Christian book. I, um, I love a story of this, this pastor. He's a pastor of a successful church, a wonderful speaker, and he was on a plane with, with Chuck Smith going to a pastor's conference, and uh, he'd been reading a book, and the book talked about how it was lonely at the top. Once you get up you know, high in the organization, like a senior pastor kind of level, it was really a lonely job. And so he thought, well, I'm going to go start a conversation with Chuck and decides to open with that. So he goes, walks over to Chuck and says, so it's lonely at the top, huh? And Chuck said, Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You've been reading the wrong books. And you think, wow. Um, it, it's so easy to read a well-intended Christian book that says something that God never said. It takes and it changes your perspective on who God is and what he wants from us in ways that he doesn't want. And it turns into a really heavy burden on us. I think a lot of us here are incredibly devout, dedicated people, willing to do whatever we think God asks of us. And that's absolutely wonderful. I love that about the people of this church. And one of the things that can happen is we love to read Christian books and we end up with these burdens. And so what we can do is we can contrast that with what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Anything that results in something other than that is not from God. Now, the application of that, I'm not great at application, but I'm going to explicitly try it right here, is to go to him for rest. That's what Jesus' command is. Come to me. And he promises you'll find rest for your souls. Often what we'll do is, I feel a heavy burden. I'll read a Christian book. Oh, here's one. It's called 12 Steps to Finding Rest. And I start trying to do the 12 steps, and it's just another burden, right? But Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. Not, not to anything else. Come to him, and he'll give you rest. The promise of the passage, uh, back to Revelation, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. It's an interesting promise. Uh, he promises to give authority. That's the basis of it, or the basic of it. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 2. And you say, well, why would he do that? Why would he quote the second psalm? The second psalm is actually a messianic psalm where God the Father says, you're my son, today I've begotten you, and goes on to grant authority to the Son. So that psalm that he quotes from for us is actually the Father granting authority to the Son. And it's interesting, I don't know exactly why God in his wisdom does this, but God in his wisdom says, I want the Son says, I want to grant you authority just as the Father granted me authority. Now, for a, a little church in an unimportant community, that's quite the promise. You think God, God's able to fulfill that promise? Can he really take a, a little church in Pacifica, California and, and fulfill this promise where the simple believers that just hold fast and don't bear any other burdens than the simple ones that Jesus has laid on them? Does he take that and give them victory and make them authority when he sets up his kingdom? Yeah. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. Um, that's what he's going to do. He says, I will give him the morning star. That's the second promise. Jesus is referred to as the morning star. He refers to himself as the bright morning star later in the same book. And so the second promise is one of um, just closeness with Christ. You're going you're gonna to have Jesus um, and closeness with him, intimacy with him. The final exhortation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We all have ears. And thus, this applies to all of us. Uh, we're to hear what God said here or to apply it to our lives as applicable. Um, and, um, you know, God is, God is detail-oriented. He, um, he knows what we need. And so if you heard something from him in this, that's probably because he knows that you need it. So please pay attention to what he said. Um, a quick recap, because this is the longest of the letters. Smallest church, longest letter. 
Um, but two things I, he said here that I think we should really pay attention to. I'll make it three. I have one extra minute. One is that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God. The fullness of who Jesus is is important for our walks with him. So remember that he's the Son of Man. He does sympathize with our weaknesses. He does want to walk with us. But he's also the Son of God. He's holy. And he pays attention to to all that we do with those eyes. um, And he lovingly corrects us. Two, the world's morals have no place in the church. Um, Like Paul said, he said, they must not even be named among you. Covetousness, sexual immorality, not even named as is proper among saints. That's how it should work. They don't belong there. And that means that they don't belong from a pulpit. And there are denominations where those things come from the pulpit. Um, you know, for, I don't hear them here, but there are places you can go that you would hear them. They also shouldn't come in a screen or earbuds if you're the leader of a little community at your home. Um, there's a, a war to be fought there over what kind of media comes in on that thing. And um, I assume it's a tough war. I have trouble keeping my kid from riding the specific bike that he wants to ride for the day. Like, he's already got opinions, like nothing else at 14 months. So 14 years. I can't imagine what a lot of you parents have gone through. But, but, uh, but it's an important war because you're, you're fighting for part of their future, you know. So, so it's important that we keep those things out of any gathering of believers. And then the third one, Jesus' burden is a light one. And, you know, he loves us so much. He is so gentle with us. There is a burden, but it's light. And um, I hope for all of us, myself included, my wife included, my son when he's old enough, that we will experience that kind of relationship with him. The one where he says, um, you'll find rest for your souls. And that's what um, he promises to give us in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, being loving enough to correct us when needed, loving enough to be patient with us when needed, wise enough to know which of those we need. Um, you, you are so many things to us in so many ways. And we ask that you would take anything that was in your scripture here that we need to hear in our individual lives and work it in. Um, your Holy Spirit would continue to work in our lives um, with your words for you know the rest of this life for us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.